You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. We have a very special episode for you today, the first of many from the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival, which kicked off in late June with Spotlight Health. This show features fellows from Aspen New Voices, a fellowship at the Aspen Institute. It's a groundbreaking initiative designed to bring more expert voices from the developing world into the global development discussion. You're about to hear from nine innovative leaders who are transforming healthcare from Sierra Leone to Nepal. Through strong grassroots relationships and homegrown leadership, the bonds they create in their communities make the difference between life and death. The show, called Undaunted Stories from the Frontlines of Global Health, was recorded live in Aspen and is hosted by John Kerry and Courtney Martin. Kerry is a designer, writer, and curator focused on social change. Martin is an author, entrepreneur, and weekly columnist for On Being. The nine extraordinary storytellers you will hear worked with the directors of the Moth Radio Hour to fine-tune their narratives. Here are John Kerry and Courtney Martin. My first and my very uh, favorite responsibility is introducing my better half, uh, my partner in life and in work, Courtney Martin. So we are co-hosting this session. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, as John mentioned, we are partners in work and life. John is trained as a designer. I'm trained as a journalist. But where we really intersect is on this passion for storytelling. We believe in the power of stories. And you are going to hear from some of the most extraordinary storytellers tonight. So all of these storytellers, as you just heard from Sarah, are part of this amazing program called Aspen New Voices. Um, we have the chance to work with a bunch of different programs and a bunch of different entities and institutions, and this is unequivocally our favorite among them. Don't tell our other uh, programs <laughs> that. Um, and they're part of this, this remarkable program um, that, that provides all sorts of training and community and just general support. And um, it's been around since 2013. Um, it, is, uh, it has now had 40 fellows over the course of three years. Um, so it's young, but it's growing. And it's, again, one of our favorite things. Um, to date, we've had uh, over 15 countries represented across Africa, as well as Asia and the Caribbean. Um, so it's growing in that way. And um, every single year, there has been an equal number of men and women. How about that? Woo! Not the norm. Um, to date, they've logged over 700 media appearances. And so we're talking like, we're talking like op-eds in the New York Times, NPR spots, TED Talks, TEDx Talks, any number of other things. And that is, I think, due in large part to the kind of support uh, for their storytelling uh, skills that, um, that the fellows received from a range of mentors and others. And I'm sure you're all wondering, well, when can we nominate other fellows? And that would be in September of this coming year, of uh, this year. Um, you can go to the website that hopefully is on the screen behind me, uh, www.aspennewvoices.org. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Courtney. And, and as you're thinking about who to nominate, you know, the idea behind this program is, is largely about that the people who, who tell the story are the ones who get to own history, right? And the story that we tell about history. And, and the people you'll see today and, and the 40 fellows writ large are the people who really deserve to be telling this story because they're living it every single day. We have so many talking heads who have opinions about what's happening in development who have actually not gotten their feet dirty in a long time. And so um, it's really as you're thinking about people to nominate, think about those people who you wish had a bigger voice in the world because they are so wise through experience. That's a lot of the kind of people who have come to this program and, and had such a huge impact. Um, so tonight, we actually did this uh, last year as well. So this is sort of undaunted part two. And as we were, we were thinking about the zeitgeist of this year and sort of the conversations we've been having and, and we've been seeing these fellows enter into in such a big way, we really felt like the, the big theme of this year is about local solutions understanding that local wisdom and local solutions need to be valued. Um, you think about something like the Ebola epidemic and a lot of the research about the solutions around that in, in the sort of aftermath was that countries that had interwoven um, strong social communities before um, Ebola struck fared best during the outbreak, right? And so what we, we went to our fellows and we said, guys, tell us your great 
stories about local solutions. Tell us your humbling moments when you came in with some you know, top-down idea and, and learned something really important about who in, in, the, in the community had the great ideas. Um, and so that's what you're going to see tonight. It's meant to be rapid fire, so get ready for a you know, fire hydrant of, of kindness and interestingness and vividness um, and wisdom. And, and we'll just do like one right after the other. So you really have to be on the edge of your seat listening um, hard to these folks. They've worked very hard to create short, uh, vivid talks. Um, so without further ado, you want to introduce our first one? Sure. Our first speaker is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of Empower Social Enterprises in Bangladesh. Um, he is a self-described uh, geek at heart, um, and he taught himself to code when he was eight years old. Uh, not bad. <laughs> so with that, please join me in giving a huge round of applause to our first speaker, Rubayat Khan. As we stepped out of our air-conditioned vehicles, uh, the spring sun greeted us with a warm hug. We had been in this village before, just trying to understand how the local healthcare system worked, or rather didn't work. We saw a lot of suffering. We saw extremely poor households spending their entire fortunes um, trying to get cures to simple diseases. This time, however, we came back with a solution. We had spent all our fancy design thinking and technology expertise to create an app that would connect the rural pharmacist with doctors in the city. And the doctors would be able to get patient data from the ground and be able to write a prescription. Uh, and the patient would walk away with that prescription in five minutes. So in our heart and mind, we actually already transformed the future of healthcare. So as we arrived at the village, we were almost about to imagine pharmacists drooling over our immaculate app. Uh, we're seeing these queues of poor patients uh, in front of the pharmacy waiting to see a city doctor. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way. As we arrived, chickens were fluttering their wings meaninglessly, cows and people alike idling by the side of the street. And we saw this pharmacist. We saw someone that we, have, we knew from before, and we, he was about to shutter his shop. We go up to him. We say, hey, we are back. We have something amazing to show you. Can we go sit in your pharmacy? He looked at us, this middle-aged, bearded, squinty-eyed man. He looked at us almost visibly annoyed, but we were too caught up in our own brilliance to notice. So he looks at our app, he flips through a few screens, what must have been less than 30 seconds later, he looks up and says, guys, can you come back tomorrow afternoon when I have a bit more free time? I need, really need, gotta run now. So we go to the next pharmacy, and then the next, and then the next bazaar. And we get that same response everywhere, as if they meant to say, damn city kids with an app. <laughs> so we go back to our city, uh, to our proverbial garage, and we lick our wounds over the next few weeks, and we realize that we'd just been taught a priceless lesson that premature success would not have taught us. We had done some things right, of course. We had spent time with the people trying to understand their problems. Not many people do that. But we, as soon as we had an understanding of the problems, we actually came back to the city and to our drawing boards, to our sticky notes, and forgot to engage people in being a part of the solution. So the next time we went back, we actually had our tablets in the bag. And we engaged pharmacists in designing the solution with us. For example, we saw that the pharmacist actually preferred an English keyboard over a Bengali keyboard, as had seemed so intuitive to us. We also talked to the local community leaders. We got them engaged in the decision-making. And as they bought into the idea, they actually sold it to their own communities. So that same cynical pharmacist who didn't give us any time eventually hosted the first telemedicine center in the village. He became our best performer and biggest champion. As it turns out, Designing a great product is just not enough. Unless you treat your end users as your clients, not as your beneficiaries, and engage them in being a part of the solution, you're likely going to be stranded in the warm sunshine with a flashy tablet and a beautiful app that just doesn't help anyone at all. Thank you. Thank you.
A very warm start. All right, so next up, we have Lebo Molitsane. She is a professor. That's right. She is a professor in rural education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. And she reports, we got fun facts from everyone, so you're going to be hear, hearing a little bit of fun stuff, that she loves having a large collection of children's books. Lebo. Got it. It was my mother who first taught me about sacrifice, about neighborliness, and about um, community resilience. Growing up in rural South Africa, our family didn't have much. But we had a few treats here and there. One of those was Christmas lunch. Every Christmas Eve, our father would arrive from Johannesburg where he worked in the mines, go to our small head of ship, select one to slaughter for our Christmas lunch. And our Christmas day would be bliss. One Christmas Eve, however, a neighbor who must have been in his 30s suddenly died. After visiting the grieving widow, my mother returned to us and casually mentioned that our ship, our Christmas lunch, and the few groceries that our father had brought from Johannesburg would be donated to the neighbor for the funeral. As you can imagine, we, myself, and my five siblings were devastated the one thing that we looked forward to the entire year was taken away just like that. I was later to learn that these acts of sacrifice were not unique to my family. Later when I started to work in rural areas, I met these various acts of sacrifice among the population in the communities. One incident stands out in my mind. I was out in the field in rural KwaZulu-Natal doing work with young women in high school around sexual and reproductive health. On my second night in the village, around 3 a.m., I was woken up by a knock on the door. The school principal, whose house I was staying in, requested me to drive a woman two doors away who was in labor. Before I could ask why me, she informed me that I was the only one with a car that night. And if I don't drive that woman to, town, to the hospital some hundred kilometers away, she might die. When I reached the woman's house, it looked like everybody was there, young and old. Men were seemingly collecting donations, and women were preparing the woman to be transported to the uh, hospital. It had rained a lot that afternoon, and in order to get to the main road, there was a puddle, a very slippery puddle. Unbeknownst to me, a group of young men and boys had been dispatched to go and help my car cross that little puddle. This community collaboration, working together, really surprised me. I had thought that it was long gone and replaced by the modern uh, family structure and its individualism. In a context where poor rural communities lack infrastructure, lack access to health and other services, it is these acts of collaboration, community resilience, that keep these communities going. Were it not for her neighbors, that woman would not have accessed the cesarean section that she needed that night. On one hand, yes, we must celebrate that rural communities are able to stand on their own. On the other hand, if we as development workers were to um, harness this community resilience in designing our project, imagine what more we could achieve. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you, Leva. Tried to get her to stay up there and accept that applause from all of you, but uh, she was happy to be done with that thing, I think. You did an amazing job. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Our next speaker, I'm not even sure where to start with this one, actually. This, is, this one's going to blow your mind a little bit. You're probably thinking, oh, another doctor from Africa here. You have no idea what you're about to, uh, to learn. Um, Serafusa Sakide is a consultant for leadership for the last mile, part of Aspen Global Health and Development. Okay, that sounds pretty normal, par for the course here. Um, he's also a China-trained medical doctor and a public health expert. Come on, anybody surprised by the whole China thing? All right, let's get somewhere. This is where it gets much more interesting. He is fluent in Mandarin Chinese, and he won China Idol. It's like American Idol. Right? By rapping in Chinese. He's a Chinese rapper. With that, come on down. So I was the lone doctor on night duty at the children's unit at the National Hospital in Kampala, Uganda. As I was seeing the patients, a mother burst into the door carrying her thin, malnourished child called Fat. Fat, short for Fatima, was two years old and had the signs and symptoms of malaria as well as severe difficulty in breathing. After a couple of quick tests, we confirmed that she actually, sadly, had malaria. When I talked to the mother, Mama Fat, I told her that one, we would have to put Fat on IV medication for malaria, and that two, we would have to put Fat on oxygen therapy. As soon as I said the words oxygen, Mama Fat started screaming and howling, saying, oxygen kills, oxygen kills, oxygen kills. I was like, OMG, <laughs> what the? So I pulled Mama Fat's sister aside and asked her, why in the world would Mama Fat think that oxygen kills? And then she explained to me, she said that in their local hospital, Every time a child had been put on oxygen therapy, they ended up dying. I understand why she would have thought that. Because only a few minutes before they had come, a child had died on oxygen therapy in our hospital. And that was why there was a space for fat on oxygen therapy. Then it occurred to me that in most Ugandan communities, most Ugandan families, the main decision makers are the men. So I got Fatma, Fatima's father's number, Baba Fat's number from Mama Fatma and called Baba Fat. When I called him, in two minutes of talking to him, he said only three phrases. He said, oh, okay. Your English is very good, which meant that he had absolutely no clue about what I was saying, and that too, he would have preferred that I speak to him in Luganda. Now the problem is, even though I am Ugandan through and through, I grew up in Kenya, and therefore my Luganda is not as fluent as it's supposed to be. Then it occurred to me that in most Ugandan communities, in the local area, you have a local council chairman, almost like the village chief. So I got the number from Mama Fat and her sister, and I called him. When I talked to him, he understood what I was saying, he got the urgency of it, and he immediately went to look for Baba Fat. When he talked to Baba Fat, he explained to him, and Baba Fat said, let's put Fatima on oxygen. So we put Fatima on oxygen, as well as the IV medication for the malaria. After three days, Fatima was well enough to be taken off the oxygen therapy and continue with the IV medication for malaria. After one week, I bumped into Fat on the ward, or rather Fat bumped into me on the ward as she was playing with the other children. So I, had, I was left with no choice but to kick her out of the ward and send her home. 
One month later, Fat and her mother came back for review. Thin Fat was no longer thin. She was actually fat and had gained weight. <laughs> Not only that, but she had a new name. Her new name was Fat, Fatima Chirabo. Chirabo, which in Luganda means gift. Gift from God. Now, if I had my way, I would have named her Fatima Oxygen. <laughs> because Fatima Oxygen, because we need more. More examples, more living examples in Uganda and in local communities everywhere of what can happen when healthcare workers work with local communities to save lives. And two, we need more living examples that oxygen does not kill. Now, if you want to hear Sarafusa rap in Mandarin, which why wouldn't you? You better find out where these people are hanging out late night, because I have a feeling he needs a couple beers first. All right, so next up is uh, Mr. David Kuria. David is the CEO of Echo, Echo Tact Limited, a social enterprise that invests in innovations to solve the sanitation crisis in Africa and beyond. And he describes himself as a, quote, turnaround solution designer, which I just love. Um, he's interested in, in absolute social transformation. David. You can imagine visiting the villages in Africa where kids cannot offer a smile. When I left the university with my architecture degree, I knew like any other ambitious young architect what was expected of us. Designing big buildings, the hotels, the stadiums, you know, a lot of expectation with a big name and a big title. Uh, until I got a job with this international organization, a UK based, to do development work. And I knew I had a chance as an architect to be able to transform lives. I visited one of the village in central left of Kenya, an area called Balingo, and we went to this school. We wanted to donate water harvesting equipment, the tanks and the gutters. And so we went there and we expected a lot of celebrations you know, from the children, from the school. And when we arrived there, every kid, you know, the school, people were just staring at us. And we thought we were really doing good. And it was a sad affair, you know, for one hour event, donations and talks, and there were no cheering, you know, the kids are just watching. Until we went to the staff room, and I was inquiring about what's, what's the problem in the school? And it only emerged that the biggest challenge was the effect of fluoride, the brown teeth phenomenon. And kids could not afford. You know, kids could not even agree to be taken photos in Africa. That was shocking. And we were done. We talked to the school and the need of the safe water. On our way through the village of Kabia Samaki, you know, we met Mama Teresa at almost her 50s. She was actually crippled, disabled. She could not start. On further inquiry, we were told it's the effect of fluoride, excessive fluoride, eating not only the teeth, but now the bones. And she was actually, you know, the body could not be supported by the legs. And she could only be taken by her daughter in and out. And when I talked to Teresa, the daughter, she told me that's almost common in the entire village. She was almost headed there. And that's the biggest challenge we found there. Teresa, her daughter, one of the students in the school, has already, already been affected by the brown teeth. Excessive. I still come from the region, but I never thought it could go to that extent. Most of us had stains but not an extent of broken teeth, you know, coming out, and they could not afford a smile. Teresa told me she could not even get any job as a receptionist. That was her future career. How do you get a receptionist without teeth? On our way back, 
I knew the role of an architect had to change. And I started six years ago designing toilets and safe water systems. Thank you. They're clapping for you. They weren't clapping for me. So, <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Um, I'm an architect, so it's especially heartening to hear uh, David talk about his, his career um, trajectory. And I'm so glad you're doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, our next speaker is a South African medical doctor currently undertaking a little thing called a PhD in population health at a little place called the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Right? Come on. She's also, if that wasn't enough, never is. Um, she's also an award-winning fiction writer. But speaking of fiction, she can't watch Ratatouille or Stuart Little because she's terrified of rats. Come on up, Campado Maboso. It was our third year of medical school, and after months of sitting through endless lectures, we were finally being released onto the hospital wards. I was ecstatic. I'd spent much of my childhood subjecting my sister and her teddy bears to games of playing doctor, and now my moment had come. My white coat was pressed and ready. My brand new stethoscope that I believed I would heal my country with was in its box and waiting to be hung around my neck. I stuffed the pockets of my white coat with all the textbooks that I could, and my good friend and clinical partner, Brittany and I, set off for the wards of Grotesky, one of South Africa's biggest public sector hospitals. We arrived onto the gynecology ward and spotted a young, friendly-looking lady who looked approachable. So we walked up to her, introduced ourselves, told her we were medical students, still learning, and asked if it would be okay if we took a medical history and examined her. She was kind and said yes, and asked if we could only just prop her up with a couple of pillows because her back was weak. But of course, it was only our pleasure. We had rehearsed and role-played this for days before. We had our questions written out on a piece of paper, but didn't really need it because we'd committed much of it to memory. And we promptly began to rattle the questions off. Age of sexual debut, history of previous sexually transmitted infections, previous sexual partners, they were invasive questions, and I'll admit, I was a little surprised that she, an African woman, and us, in her eyes, African children, answered the questions fully and without fuss. We were doing really well. Our first patient ever, and things were going swimmingly. And then we got to her reproductive history and asked about the number of children she had, and she answered three. And without warning, crumpled into a heap of tears. It turned out that the cervical cancer that had brought her to the ward had begun to infiltrate her spinal column and was getting ready to spread to the rest of her body. Her prognosis was terminal, her treatment palliative, and it was unlikely that she'd have very much longer with her young family. I was stuck. The crying was not something we had role-played. And the textbooks in my pockets had no advice on what to do in this situation. My friend Brittany, who had always been a lot more sensitive than I, asked the lady if she'd like us to pray with her. Pray? This is not what we rehearsed. This is not what real doctors did. And this is certainly what we weren't taught in our lectures. The lady said yes. Brittany grabbed my hand and hers and she began to pray. There really wasn't much more to say after that, so we thanked her for her time and left. I was angry. Angry that because this woman was poor and vulnerable, 
she, like many South Africans that live in her circumstances, was unable to access the minimum of three free pap smears in her lifetime that would have spared her three children from having to go through life without a mother. I was angry that our health system was failing the very people we were supposed to serve, and that a family would be devastated by a disease that we know how to easily and cheaply prevent. And I was angry that the stethoscope that I had wrapped my dreams around was proving to be powerless against the cancer that was eating at my country's healthcare system. I finished medical school, but never looked at my stethoscope quite the same after that day. And the more patients I saw, the more I realized that if I wanted to make an attempt to heal my country in earnest, then that could only happen for me through a career in public health. And that with the kinds of cancers I'd be coming up against, my stethoscope was only suitable for child's play. Thank you. That one takes my breath away. What a beautiful writer and a beautiful human. Um, next up, we have Abraham Leno. He is a country representative of the American Refugee Committee, ARC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as a former refugee himself from Guinea. Um, you can imagine that Abraham's life is pretty intense, given that job description. So he tells us that to keep himself calm, he listens to the BBC. It has just the calming effect he needs. Here's Abraham. I went to the Congo to implement development programs. Um, we have an uh, interesting and innovative idea as an organization, providing health care, interacting or integrating health care with agriculture and water. But I will never forget my encounter with the community leader called Mr. Ishungu. Ishungu is a small-bodied man, but with a very big ego. He's the kind who is never afraid to tell you what he thinks. So by protocol, we are protocol, we went through him to talk to the community. But traditional organization as we were, we had our ideas in our pockets on a very nice paper and a good proposal, and we went to talk to the community. So we said, here is our brilliant idea. We feel that we have an innovative idea and we want to talk to you. And this is what we want to implement. We started. So we want to work with local leaderships. And the community was, no, we don't trust our leaders. Huh. Why? And they said, well, leaders have divided us on political grounds, on religious grounds, even on ethnicity. Some of them were even the cause for us to have run away from our communities. So we said, OK. It's a business idea. We would like to work with individuals. And they're like, no, we want to remain a community. So anything you do here should help us work together. If you can't keep us as a community, don't do anything here. This was becoming very difficult. We went down to implementation and we said, okay, since it's an integration uh, project, we want to do uh, beans, peas, and sunflower because they will help you on nutrition. And they're like, no, we want to grow potatoes. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, here are also ideas that we, we want to brand this project. And we uh, proposed some names. One of the names that really fascinated me was uh, Pamoja. It means together, you know, in Kiswahili. Another one was Yetu. Yetu means our. So we went in our health, our water. Our, and they looked at us and said, we don't want those names. People came here and they used Yetu. They collected money. It was a local cooperative and declared bankruptcy and left. And we said, okay, how about the colors, the logo we want to present? And they looked at the colors and the women told us some of the military groups, armed men that, worked in, that passed in this community during the war wore the same colors. So people who raped us used the same colors. Political parties use the same colors. So we had to put everything back into our pockets and went to co-create with the community. We sat down and asked them, 
What do you want? How can we work with you? How do we develop a program together? We sought ideas from uh, our partners like IDEO.org and they helped us. We branded together. We implemented activities as they suggested, the community suggested. And you know people, co-creation is a win-win. Today, we have sold over a million liters of water in that community. Since starting in September, we have seen over a thousand or more patients. All of them have been able to pay. We have been able to grow and produce a lot of potatoes. Over 100,000 kilos every three months. And that is what they use to pay for their health care. It's about time in development that we start to look at communities as the expert of what we do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abraham. Uh, amazing, amazing. I love these stories, every single one of them. Um, our next one is going to be great as well. It's uh, Samuel Cargbo, who is the Director of Reproductive and Child Health Programs with the Ministry of Health in Sierra Leone. And he's going to talk about something that is one of the heavier topics of tonight, and that's his extraordinary work um, with the Ebola epidemic there in Sierra Leone. But he is affectionately known by his many friends as SAS. So please join me in welcoming to the stage, SAS. Thank you. Thank you. The Ebola viral disease hit Sierra Leone, and within a short while, whole villages had become decimated. And I knew that the secret to knowing how to halt this spread lay in going there to those areas to see what actually was responsible. So off I went from my air-conditioned office to these areas and then went to meet the chief in Kailan town. When I, went to, when I met the chief there, he was wearing a brown um, and white striped uh, traditional African woven cloth. And around him were sitting about 30 to 40 of his uh, kinsmen, all sitting very quietly, nobody touching each other. And this was a very unusual meeting because there was no shaking of hands, there was no hugging. It was just everybody sitting there and no smiles because of the devastation that they had seen. Every single home in this town had lost a loved one and some houses even completely decimated. It was hard to see. But then speaking with the chief there who was sitting um, uh, uh, water in his eyes, he started to explain to me some of the story. Now observing the entire crowd there, everybody was sitting holding uh, uh, an, a, a bottle full of um, uh, chlorine solution and from time to time they would be using it and rub it, rubbing it on their hands but taking care not to touch each other. And this chief started to explain to me. So I asked him, chief, what is it that you think is responsible for such a, a spread of the disease at a very short time. So he told me, you know, it is our traditional African uh, 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 ways of doing some of the things. He told me, especially the affinity with the dead. We couldn't stand it seeing our dead people just being wrapped in plastic sheets and cutted away without knowing where they were taken to. And that was why some of my mania went and grabbed some of our elders that were being taken away, brought them, and then washed the corpses, wrapped them them, giving them the traditional African burials, and this was what brought about this hike in cases, killing so many people within a short time. So we sat there, I said, well, chief, explain to me, how do you think we could halt it now in other areas that are experiencing it now? He said, well, why not give us a chance to let us do it properly? I said, but chief, we cannot do that because you know how infectious these corpses are. Why not have some of your people join us so that we train them to wear the full personal protective gear, and then together we can take the corpses, you, you, the family members could be just a short while, say their prayers, and then we take the cops to even the family grave but the family could be a, a distance apart and then we can get the cops there they say their prayers we we can even put the cops in a coffin after all the the, the preparation with the plastic shade and then take to the, the family grave buried there without the family coming there we say that could bring a halt to it and he said yes we could give it a try so i knew then um, uh, what was in my mind but i knew it may be difficult to convince my colleagues back in freetown so back i was 
this time chasing the virus wherever I had there was a hike. I was there to, uh, to interview more chiefs. So I interviewed about three, four, five chiefs across the country and they were telling me the same story and convincing me that if we went on to do some of these things, then it could be fine. So I went to Freetown and then straight away went to my principals. I told them I want to be the head of burials in this country. So I abandoned my, my post, the official one, and I became chief burial officer for Ebola. And then it was then that I formed a team of um, uh, like-minded people with whom we sat down and formulated the safe, uh, dignified medical burials procedural manual, which spelled out exactly what we what we should do. That um, it's it's actually prohibited any uh, community members from doing burials, but that these burials were to follow these procedures. Bylaws were enacted countrywide, and with all of this, we saw a downturn in the number of cases that were that were uh, uh, occurring in the country now. Oh, how I wish the entire world could be as passionate as this to bring about the vaccines and the drugs, we would have seen a better uh, world now free of Ebola. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's, you know, it's not only courage with SAS, it's also just that intelligence of thinking through that, that collaborative solution that I just find so inspiring. Um, so next we have Elsa, who is a fierce, fierce woman. Many of you probably saw her in the very first opening um, session when she, she had her two-minute idea. Well, you're going to get a little bit more of her today. Um, she is uh, the co-founder of Safe City, an online platform that tracks reports of sexual abuse and harassment. But interestingly, she was actually an airline route planner for one of India's largest airlines before making a career switch two years ago. So she has traveled a very interesting road to get to us today. Elsa, to the stage. I was traveling by local train with my mom and siblings. And the compartment was extremely crowded. As we prepared to disembark, I could feel someone lift my skirt and grope my private parts. It felt terrible. I wanted to move the hands away, but my own arms were pinned to my side. I wanted to scream. But I knew that my voice would be drowned in the noise of the crowd. And so all I could do was silently shout, stop it, stop touching me. I was only 13 years old. And what did I do? I never spoke about it until recently. I filed it at the back of my mind and moved on with life in the best way I knew how to. But I was not alone. According to UN Women, one in three women around the world experience some form of sexual assault at least once in their lifetime. And more than half of these occur to girls below the age of 16. Yet, 80% of them choose not to talk about it for fear of bringing shame to themselves and their families and fear of dealing with the police. In fact, for most of us, we think of sexual violence as rape, and we tend to dismiss the other forms, verbal and nonverbal sexual violence, thinking it's too trivial, when in fact it can be extremely debilitating for many, limiting their movement, their choices, and affecting their mental health. A couple of years ago, a young woman was beaten brutally and gang-raped in a moving bus in Delhi, the capital city of India. She ultimately died of her injuries. And that incident shocked everyone. It shocked me. And that was when I decided I definitely had to do something concrete about this issue. I quit my airline management job, and I co-founded Safe City, which is an online crowdsourcing platform that documents sexual violence in public spaces. And this crowdsourced information gets collated as location-based trends and visualized on a map as hotspots. Since we started, over 5,000 women and girls have shared their reports with us anonymously. Safe City data has identified many hotspots. One of them is in an urban slum in Delhi. It's on a main road, 
where there's a tea, tea stall. And men would loiter over there and intimidate women and girls with their constant staring. When asked, what would you like to change in your neighborhood? The young girl said, we would like the staring to stop. So we organized an art workshop for them and they painted this wall with staring eyes and subtle messaging that loosely translates in English to, look with your heart and not with your eyes. And it's been over six months and I'm happy to report to you that the loitering and staring has completely stopped. And those girls can now walk to school, college, or work without fear of being intimidated. I could do nothing when I was 13 years, but it gives me great pleasure when 13-year-olds who attend our workshop are taking affirmative action to end sexual harassment in their neighborhoods. Thank you. Amazing story of her career travels. Thank you for everything you do, and Safe City does. Um, our next speaker is a post, I should say our second last speaker, in fact, is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology at Auburn University in Alabama. And that sounds kind of interesting, but this part is even more interesting. She legally adopted the word science as her middle name. That's how committed this woman is. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Esther Science Ngombi. I was born in a small farming community in Kenya. I am a researcher, I'm a scientist in Alabama, and I, my research has been trying to help feed our world sustainably. Food security is important to the health and well-being, and we will get there. However, it is not just about feeding our bellies. It is also about creating environments where people will thrive and we can have other scientists like me. Books and the love and visions to see the Kenyan coast and my community are thriving agriculture inspired me to start a library, the first, the first library in my community. So to get my books, I worked in every department at Auburn University and I collected books. I was determined to take them to Kenya, come rain or sunshine. So the day came when I had to travel. I packed all my books and I hit the road. First came Atlanta. When I went to the Delta counter, they weighed my luggage. They told me I had 40 pounds excess. <sighs> what was I gonna do? These books had come all the way from Auburn and they were headed to Kenya. So I quickly packed my books and my hand luggage. I was able to board the Delta flight. Hooray! I was happy. <laughs> However, my journey was not yet over. Next came Dubai. I had to change flights. I was sitting there and were happily waiting to go to Kenya with my books. Five minutes before boarding the flight, a passenger came to me. They, said, they told me, excuse me, young lady, do you know that Kenya Airways would only let you carry five pounds. What? What did you tell me? Excuse me? I was determined not to leave the box in Dubai. So I thought quickly and I saw a lot of people just like I'm seeing you. People with little luggage. So I literally walked to every person and I begged. I said, excuse me, I'm a student. I believe in inspiring our younger generation. If you believe in education, if you believe in inspiring the next generation, please have a book. Help me take these books to Kenya. Some people took my books, others just stared at me blankly. Crazy Kenyan lady. I had shared 
35 pounds. I had five extra pounds. Then finally, I went. I had 10 pounds. And remember, it's a five pounds limit. This guy looks at me, and I'm ready to board the flight. 15 minutes late. The doors are about to be closed. He looks at me and says, young lady, we only allow five pounds. I looked at him back and I said, excuse me if you believe in inspiring young Kenyans. Don't argue with me. Just let me go. He let me go. And I had to carry to walk all the hours and take my books back. I'm happy to report that this spring, actually somebody who had my story stepped forward and donated $10,000. In October, the doors to the library will open and we will have an agriculture section. For the love of our young Kenyans, I am determined to do anything and everything until it comes to a better end. I may have looked crazy, stupid in Dubai, but I'm happy to announce this October the doors to our first and first library will open. In this business of development, you have to be undaunted. She is the best spirit. I love that woman. So let's have a big round of applause for all of our incredible new voices. You guys rocked it. Thank you. And, and we really appreciate this audience. You all are such a beautiful audience. I think everyone felt your presence and your attention. So we really appreciate you. And I did say, before introducing the last speaker, that we have one more speaker, and we very much do. They're not on your agenda, but he is very much the reason that we're all here. And that is the program director for Aspen New Voices, Andrew Quinn. Double hug. Well, you can tell I'm the luckiest guy in Aspen, right? Um, it's my great joy and greater honor to work with these fellows who work so hard on their areas of expertise and also work, are, are working hard to tell us why it's important and why they do what they do. Um, they're all here. I would encourage you to come introduce yourself, learn more. They've got plenty more stories to tell. I'd also encourage you to think about us if you know of people who might be good for this fellowship, uh, aspennewvoices.org. And um, I just want to give you the fellows. I also want to thank John and Courtney, who have been wonderful partners, supporters, <laughs> leaders on this whole thing. And of course, our, our, our friends and supporters at the Gates Foundation, without which it wouldn't be possible. That was Courtney Martin and John Carey, joined on stage by the nine Aspen New Voices Fellows at Spotlight Health, a health-focused series that kicks off the Aspen Ideas Festival. To find out more about the Aspen Institute's New Voices Fellowship, go to aspennewvoices.org. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.